1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning of verse 19. At the first part of the celebration of Christmas in our church, we give emphasis to foreign missions and spreading the gospel to the rest of the world. I want you to follow along with me in verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, the Gentile world, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that by all means I may save or win some. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker of it. The First Baptist Church in a little town in Southwest, in the Southwest, they were having a soul winning training school. And all week they met at the church to learn how to win people to Christ, learning the methods of soul winning. The local barber went to the soul winning meetings. Now he wasn't really too high on it because he was shy and reticent and he, he hadn't really uh, been able to talk to anybody about something as deep and personal as a walk with Christ. But his preacher put a heavy guilt trip on him, and so he went. And the stress of that week began to mount because he realized that on the last night of the conference, he'd have to stand and give a report about someone to whom he had shared the gospel of Christ, and he was dreading that. The last day before the night session, he was under a great deal of pressure. He was thinking, I've got to do it. I've got to win somebody. I've got to at least share the gospel. What will I look like if I go to the meeting and I haven't told anybody how to be saved? And it was really heavy on him. Old Fred came in to get his weekly shave. And he knew Fred was not a Christian. He thought to himself, this is the one. God sent him by. I've got to do it. Got to share with him the gospel. So he put him in his chair and he leaned him back and he was lathering his face, lathered his face. And while he was stropping the straight razor, he was thinking, got to do it now. His hands were getting sweaty and his, his voice was reaching a high pitch when he finished stropping the razor and started toward Fred and said, Fred, are you ready to die? <laughs> the last thing they saw of Fred, he was running down an alley with leather flying from his face. Now all of us, I think, would agree that that's really not the best way to share the gospel. 
But I think all of us would agree that this world is crying for people to come and tell about the news of Jesus Christ. To a world that's run amok, there must be people who are desperately in need of somebody who will confront them with Jesus Christ. There are very few of us would would deny that the opportunities of sharing the gospel to the world are unparalleled. Whether they're in the tragedies that are happening in Somalia, where every day because of gunfire or starvation, five to 6,000 people die. And there are entire cities in Somalia where every child under five has starved to death. Or whether it be in ancient and historic Bosnia and Yugoslavia, these beautiful cities that are being reduced to rubble because of civil war, or whether it's in Russia where thousands of people are standing in line to get in church as church continues all day long just to get a seat to hear the gospel, and they're being saved by the thousands on the street corners where people are preaching. And every day from Russia there comes request for people to come and tell and teach teachers how to teach the, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ to teachers so they can teach it in the public schools of Russia. Or whether it's in, can you imagine this statement? Whether it's in the hundred million children who live on the streets of Latin America. Can you imagine that? A hundred million street kids in Latin America. Somebody must be longing for somebody to share the gospel with them. Now these opportunities to share the gospel do not exist for long. Missionaries who know history know the history of how Mongolia became Muslim. In the eighth century, Nestorian Christians went to China to share the gospel. In the 13th century, Genghis Khan, who was emperor, was fascinated by what he'd heard about Christianity from Marco Polo. And so he sent an emissary to the Pope in Rome and asked him for somebody to come to Mongolia and to his empire to share what what this was all about. Four men were sent from from Rome to to Mongolia, to that empire, which included at that time Mongolia, all of China, and most of Eastern Asia. These four men left to go. Two of them died on the way. The other two were frightened, and they turned back. No word came. And so Genghis Khan, who believed that monotheism was far superior to idolatry, allowed his people to become Muslim. The world is crying for us, and the opportunities are limited. And what this world needs, I think, more than anything else, is people, or people who, who have a burning desire, a compassion, a, an obsession to confront it with Jesus Christ. That's what's lacking. That's what this Apostle Paul was about. He was so obsessed with a desire to tell the world about Jesus Christ that he started out with a cross on his back and he tracked up and down Asia Minor. Sadly enough, that obsession, that burning desire is the exception with most of us. I sat this week in a ministerial alliance meeting. I'm not too hung up on ministerial alliance meetings, but I did go. 
And I was sitting in this meeting, and after we had discussed the usual problems of the transient aid fund and all that kind of stuff, a, a, a minister in this town began to share. He was very emotional, and he said, Gentlemen, I want you to pray for me. He said, My church is cold, and there's a need in my church for revival. He said, In my church, there's no desire to share the gospel with anybody. And around that table, men that I've worked with here in this town, many of them are not from evangelical churches. All of them begin to share that there was in their congregations this sense of deadness and coldness and lack of fire. It's a tragic day when this obsession, this desire to share Christ with the world begins to wane in a church or in an individual's life. And many of us are like that today. Now, I've not come this morning to try to get to convince everybody to become a missionary. I just want to come share with you four simple truths from this text. The first is that not everybody will be saved, only some. He said, I want to win some. Not everybody will be saved. I say it with a great deal of sadness this morning that many of the people in this congregation, this auditorium, and many who are watching me on television, will reject Jesus Christ today for the last time and will live in eternity separated from Him. I'm sad to say that, but it's true. And somebody asked me one time, they said, Pastor, how do you, how do you endure that when you get up on Sunday morning and you preach, you know, and your heart seems to be in it and people reject the gospel? Well, my only answer to that individual was this, that I went into this upfront understanding that not everybody would accept Christ. Now that brings a great deal of sadness to my heart to say that. Think how it must have made Paul feel. He's the man who said, I'd be willing to burn in hell for eternity if it'll help my nation be, be saved. Think how it made Jesus feel when people turned away and rejected Him. There's an example of it in the New Testament. And a young man came running to Jesus. He was rich. He was of the ruling class. And by that time... In, to the ruling class, Jesus and all his workers had become anathema. So to be seen consorting with this lowly Nazarene would mean that he would be ostracized and cast out forthwith. But he in care came running to Jesus. Now why do people come to Christ in the first place? Some people come to Christ because of a mother's prayer or the worship of a church service. Some people come to Christ because they're tired of suffering and they want some help. William Cooper said, I was not so much persuaded to religion as I was scourged into it. But this man came to Christ because he had a hole in his heart and he had a deep longing, he had, he had an emptiness. And he said, what lack I yet? In other words, what's wrong with me? I'm rich and I'm powerful and I'm miserable. Can you tell me, sir, what's wrong with me? I want to know how to live. And Jesus looked on him, the scripture says, says and loved him. Very seldom is that said, it's just understood. And he rejected. Now why do men reject Christ? Maybe it's because of the radicalness of the demand, as in this case. Maybe it's because of some besetting sin or something that you're not willing to give up yet. But the fact of the matter is that people turn away from Christ. They did then and they do today. Point number two. God wants to use you to win some. 
God wants to use you to win some. It's a sobering reality when we confront the fact that God did not intend for us to live in this world and never introduced anybody to Him. It's a sobering fact, but true. Now you may say, well look, I'm just not good at this. I, I'm not eloquent. I'm not trained. I'm not skilled. I'm telling you, God's not hung up on that. He's not hung up on powerful, persuasive, polished deliverers. He just wants somebody committed to Him. Hear me now. The one single factor that changes the world is commitment. You say, well, I'm afraid. I, you've just said that not everybody will be saved, and I'm afraid I'll hit those who are not. and I'll, you know, I'll, They'll reject me and reject the gospel, and I'll feel terrible about it. The fact is that you'll never, I'm convinced that if you develop a heart for Jesus and a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, you will never ever talk to, some, to a person about Christ that God has not already dealt with. He's not calling us into a hostile world where He's never been. He's inviting us to follow Him to people with whom He's already dealt. You remember Meredith Wilson's song, they're birds in the air, but I never saw them winging. No, I never saw them at all until there was you. And there are bells in the hill, but I never heard them ringing. No, I never heard them at all until there was you. And there was music and wonderful roses, they tell me, in sweet, fragrant meadows of dawn and dew. And there was love all around me and singing, but I never heard it. No, I never heard it at all until there was you. There are people who will never hear Jesus' name unless they hear it from you. There are people who will never see Christ unless they see Him in you. There are people who will never feel the touch of Messiah unless they feel Him in you. And I'm absolutely convinced that God is more at work in the lives of people than we're willing, willing to admit. And so God came to a man one day by the name of Ananias. He said, I want you to go to the place called Straight. I want you to talk to a man about his need of salvation. He said, okay, I'm ready. Here we go. He said, who is it? He said, Saul. He said, oh, my soul, Saul. I may must have fainted. You mean that guy's been cutting all the heads of all the Christians, throwing them in jail and killing them? That's the one. Do you remember the first sentence that that witnesser, that, that Ananias said to Saul when he went to his house? Here it is. Let me tell you what it was. The God who appeared to you sent me. I want to give you three examples this morning of people God has sent and used. The first man is named, let me check his name out, his name is George Boardman. He stands six foot, six foot five, he's this huge guy, you probably never heard of him. I'm sure that you have heard of how closed Burma was to the gospel, or has been to the gospel. This guy, George Boardman, went to Burma. And he went to a little village to a group tribe of people at the base of the Himalayas called the Karnia people. And he went there to preach the gospel. The first sermon he preached, a hundred people came to Christ. He said, I noticed that when I opened the Bible, their eyes bugged out his own stems. 
He didn't know, but a thousand years before that day, that day somebody wrote in the tradition of these Carnea, this Carnea tribe that one day a man would come with a black book and tell them how to get to God. Before he finished his mission work in Burma, a hundred thousand people had come to Christ. Some entire villages had come to believe. The second man I want to introduce you to is named Albert Bland. One day Albert Bland walked across a, a, the, 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 the border into southern Ethiopia. That's much in the news. And it was hot and he was tired and so he sat down under a big old tree. It was the only tree in the area. He sat down under the shade of that tree and he went to sleep. When he woke up from his nap, he was surrounded by, a tribe, by, by native people. He thought he was going to die, so he said, well, if I'm going to die, I'm going to preach before I die. And when he preached, he said, everybody in the village became a Christian. He didn't know that a thousand of years before that, in the tradition of these people, it was written, that a fair-skinned man would come one day and sit under that sycamore tree and point them to God. 250 churches were started and the medicine man in the village became a believer. Two women one night in Roswell, New Mexico went down to the First Baptist Church to go visiting on Monday night. This night, instead of going and getting names like they'd always done before, they decided they would just ask God to lead them. And so they prayed, Lord, Holy Spirit, lead us to some lost person tonight. And God told them to go to the city, the saloon in the city, the number one watering place in Roswell, the roughest place in town. And they went out and they, they parked in the parking lot of this saloon and they prayed and they decided that the first person who came out of the saloon would be the person they were to witness to. A guy came out of the saloon, they got out of the car and they walked up to him and they said, Sir, we felt led of God to come tonight and to share with you Jesus Christ as your only hope. And he said, they said the man turned pale as a ghost and said, Last night in a dream... Jesus told me someone would tell me tonight how to be saved. I'm here to tell you that most, for most of us, God is at work in the world more than we're willing to admit. That doesn't mean that, you, that people this morning are turning in their yellow pages, looking up the word church and finding out how they can come. That doesn't mean that you're going to knock on the doors sometime and people are just going to open the doors and say, come on in, we've been waiting on you. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that there are people with whom God is at work who will never be saved without you. More than we like to admit. A young lady sat in my office not long ago and told me this story. She said, I have lived in the world all my life. Boy, did I know that. If the reputation I'd heard of, she said, I've lived in the world all my life, but there's not been a day of my life that I have not longed for somebody to influence me to be a Christian. God wants to use you to win some. Point number three, we need to do everything we can to win some, and we're not. The Apostle Paul said, I have become weak so I can win the weak. 
I become strong so I can win the strong. I become like a Jew. I start acting like a Jew. I start acting like a Gentile so I can win the Jews and the Gentiles. Let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying I've compromised my convictions. He's not saying I have surrendered to expediency. He's not saying I'm some kind of a religious chameleon that just changes colors to fit the environment so I can be accepted and popular. He's not saying I'm, I, I'm like Mr. Facing Both Ways in John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress. He's not saying that at all. Let me tell you what he is saying. He's saying I've decided in order to win people to Christ, I'm going to give up some pleasures. And I've decided that I'm going to sacrifice my rights. I've decided that I'm going to give up my privileges. And if it's necessary for me to stop doing something that other people are offended by, I want to stop. And if it's necessary for me to begin to do something I really don't enjoy, I'm going to begin to do it so I can win some. I'm going to put my life up beside other people. And I'm going to feel their feelings. I'm going to hurt their hurts. I'm going to identify and empathize. I'm going to plant my life where people are. I'm going to do what I can to win some. I heard about an insurance salesman in Nova Scotia. He had an office on the 17th floor of this big office complex, big office building in Nova Scotia. One day he was at his desk and he, he noticed outside the window there were these window washers. Now this is 17 floors above the earth. And they were washing windows. He said just kind of as a joke. He, he got a piece of cardboard and he wrote on it, Would you like some insurance? And he went over there and he held it up to the window washers. Would you like to buy some insurance? And he said one of these guys reached into his pocket and he pulled out a little piece of paper and he scribbled a note on it and put it up against the window. He went over and it read, we'd like to buy some if you'll come out here and sell it. <laughs> and, and they didn't think he would. He got, a, he got a rope and he fastened the rope to the 20th floor of this hotel, I mean, this office building, true story. And he lowered himself from the 20th floor down to the 17th floor, got on that scaffolding, sold that guy a $50,000 life insurance policy. That, my friend, is becoming all things to all men. <laughs> I'll do whatever I can to win some, he said. If it means that I give up my life, I'm willing to do it. To us who are Christians... I suppose the greatest tragedy of Nero was not that he fiddled while Rome burned, but that he fiddled on the brink of hell. The greatest tragedy in this place is that we fiddle on the brink of hell and are not doing what we can. Now it gives me great comfort, comfort to know that when God looks down on this community, He loves it. It is of great comfort for me to know that God loves this town more than I love this town. But it gives me some, a great deal of, of, of anxiety when I also understand that the God who loves this town must be saying to Himself, why is this town still lost? I have a church there. I have a BSU there. I have salt there. 
Why is it that in Bryan County, 50% of the people of Bryan County have no relationship to a church at all, much less a Christ at all. And he must be looking on this community with love saying, because I love this town, why is it not saved? And that thrust that back upon me and upon you to confront me with the question, are we really doing all win some. One last thought. There's something in it for you. Now I don't know whether you noticed or not, but I want you to look at verse 23 again. It says, that I may by all means save some, and I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker of it. I thought he already was. Did you know, have you ever noticed that? That I may be a, a fellow partaker of the gospel? I thought he was already a partaker of the gospel. I mean, this guy was a preacher, a missionary. He's going up and down the earth. And he says, I, I, I'm doing all I can to win some so I can be a partaker of the gospel. I thought he already was a partaker of the gospel. If he wasn't, who is? Got to be an answer to that. There is an answer. I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 1. Now 1 John is the epistle, so we're in the back of the New Testament. 1 John chapter 1, beginning verse 1. Now everybody needs to look at this. Something in here that you need to hear. 1 John chapter 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we beheld in our hands, handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we've seen it and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and what we have... And heard, we proclaim to you also that you also may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship with us, with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. Here it is. And these things we write, so that our joy may be made complete. Now, let me ask you a question: What could be greater? What could be what could be uh, superior to having seen Jesus with their own eyes? and touched Him with their own hands, and heard Him with their own ears. That looks to me like that that would be the ultimate. That would be the quintessence of joy. I mean, what could be more wonderful than to see Jesus with our eyes, and touch Him with our hands, and hear Him with our ears? And yet this man who did that said, I write this so I can be completely happy. You know what that means? It means that there is an incompleteness to your faith until you share Him with somebody else. There is an incompleteness to your experience. How wonderful that experience might be until you share Him with the world. A lady one day wrote Atlantic Monthly she was writing a guy by the name of Edward Weeks. He was a, he was a 
a journalist, a, a, a columnist in the Atlantic Journey, the Journal, and um, he, he, he wrote about fishing. He was a fishing expert. And her husband had recently retired, and, and she wanted to have, she, she, he was bugging her. She wanted to get him out of the house. I mean, he was driving her crazy. And she's wanting to get him into fishing, you know, get him into fishing. And so she wrote him, uh, uh, Edward Weeks, to see what she could, out, you know, how to outfit him, you know, what she would get him for Christmas so he could get into fishing, get, her out, get him out of the house. And he wrote back to Edward Weeks this simple little statement. Listen, what your husband needs is a pair of old sneakers, dirty old trousers, and a little bit of insect repellent he just needs to discover the joy of catching fish. Let him learn how not to catch them later on. You and I just need the joy that's complete. And that's the joy of taking somebody's hand and putting that hand into the nail-scarred one. I want you to respond to this invitation this way this morning. It's amazing in the early service that what I said in the early service was embodied because down the aisle came a student, Rebecca Looper. Name ring a bell? A Parsons scholar. She's academically, she academically excels in chemistry and math. In fact, we had her one time for a, as a tutor at our house. But Dr. Bostic and Dr. Polson did just what I'm talking about. They shared the gospel with Rebecca Looper. And she came this morning publicly professing her faith in Christ. The invitation I want to extend this morning is first of all for those of you who have never accepted Christ as your personal Savior. The greatest thing that can happen in life is to come to know Christ in a personal way. If you come this morning trusting Him and repenting of your sin, giving your heart and life to Christ and pray that He'll come into your life and live there. He will. And I want you to respond to this invitation. Perhaps you're saying, Pastor, I know what you're talking about. My desire to see people come to Christ has waned and I want to recommit myself to take the gospel into my world sphere. Or maybe you need to come and join this church. While we sing and while sirens blow, I want you to come and give your heart to Christ. I want you to respond to this invitation in a personal way. After we've had prayer. Father, grant us, Lord, the obedience to do what you want us to do today in this place. For I ask in Jesus' name, amen.